I'd like to talk <coughs> about something tonight that usually, if I talked about it at all on a group retreat, I would probably choose to do it at the end. Maybe the talk on the last evening as you're moving back into the world. But, uh, the other world. And, um, but for different reasons, I've, we've decided uh, to do it now. Uh, for various reasons. And then some of uh, it will just leave and just put it there now. Uh, some, some of the themes I'll, I'll pick up later on. <clears throat> Let me start with a question. For you. Where do you think all this is leading? Where do you think it's going? What's your sense of that? What's your fantasy of that? And, and fantasy there is a good word, it's not a bad word. We need fantasy, we need a fantasy of practice. Very important. What's your fantasy, what's your sense? Where is it going? So some, some uh, people uh, will be familiar from hearing or reading, there is the idea of awakening or uh, liberation. Some people may not have heard that those terms before or may have heard it but don't really relate to that. So whether I do relate to that kind of uh, idea, awakening, liberation, something uh, like that, or whether I don't, whether I'm a practitioner of many years or whether I'm a practitioner, I've just come very new to practice. What's, what's the sense of where this is leading? Am I aware of my fantasy of where practice is headed? We usually don't think this way too consciously, but to me it's very important to be conscious. What's going on there? Not because it's a bad thing and I shouldn't have one. I should have one. I really sh- I need to have one, otherwise I can't motivate myself. But to be aware of it. So do I, for instance, somehow dimly or more consciously imagine that everything uh, when I'm awakened or more awakened or further on down the line everything will be easier there'll be much more calm everything will be simpler the world and its complications will be simpler to my eyes do I expect that? do I want that? (laughs) Buddha Buddha Rupa Buddha statue you can get a a lot of garden centers and things nowadays (laughs) what does it say to you? so it's a really powerful image it's an archetype already I mean not quite as much in our culture as the sort of crucifixion but it's there in our culture you know by the fact that you can get it in, in a garden store People know what that is. What's it saying? What does it say? What's it communicating? What's that archetype communicating? What's he doing? What does it show him doing? He's sitting there. Very serene, very still, very undisturbed. Oftentimes with his eyes closed in meditation. That's a powerful archetypal image is being communicated there. 
And through the image, a lot, a lot else gets communicated. A lot. He is the archetype, or an archetype, of the equanimous sage. The sage, the wise one. Equanimous through his sagacity, through his wisdom. But there is a kind of aloofness in it. It's very much, if you read the, the ancient text, there, there is an aloofness, a transcendence of the world that's very much there in the original text. We don't like that so much nowadays, so we kind of paper over to fit more of our contemporary view. But it's still communicating something about a, a, an equanimity that comes out of a certain kind of wisdom that has a kind of aloofness in it. Uh, separation, distance. So, not good, not bad, but has an effect. Compare the story of Jesus uh, overturning the tables of the moneylenders, this hot-headed young man in the temple. It's a different archetype being communicated. Not good, not bad, just different, and has different effects. And so I don't even think about these archetypes, but they permeate the culture, and the meditation culture, and the spiritual culture, etc. And it has its effect, most certainly it has its effect, even for people who are uh, new, and don't think about things like liberation, etc. So why is this important? Because the fantasy that I have in relationship to practice will, will determine... <coughs> kind of what my practice becomes. It, it uh, determines the direction of my practice. It can't not have an effect there. It might also be that I choose the fantasy uh, and the archetypes that I'm relating to dependent on what I want. So I might want less bother, less impingement, less hassle, less disturbance, less agitation. And so I zero in on the spiritual archetypes or the whatever that, that seem to communicate that and seem to suggest the possibility of that to both. A little while ago I was talking to a good friend and she was saying when she was growing up uh, as a child <clears throat> and into her adolescence and felt the visceral pain looking around her in the world at the pollution uh, that one can be aware of, the, 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 the plastic in the oceans, the plastic in the environment, the, uh, all kinds of things. And I actually felt a real pain with that. And as she got a little older and encountered the possibility of learning meditation and Buddhism and all that, and the thought was, well, if I practice, maybe that pain will, will die down. Remember, I have some freedom from that pain. But that's not what happened. Actually, an increase in sensitivity, an increase in sensitivity with, with deepening practice. And the heart opens and it comes with that price. Alongside a kind of equanimity, but the sensitivity is, is growing. Now in the Buddha's time, 2,500 and something years ago, uh, the whole fabric of the society and the culture was different couldn't have conceived that the human population would grow so exponentially and the, and the rapidity of technology, technological innovation, etc., industrialization, that couldn't have conceived that humanity would be able to have such a devastating effect on the climate. Just 
didn't enter into, couldn't have conceived of, of the kind of juggernaut of globalization that is now full, full steam ahead. Just wasn't in the picture. Very small society, me and, and the acts that I do and, and the immediate consequences of that. When you have globalization, it's a much more complex picture. Where did this come from, this shirt? What effect does it have on someone in Bangladesh or something? So what does all that mean? It's a very different uh, situation we're dealing with now than before. And what do I imagine as I move towards awakening, if I, if I think of those words or not? That everything will become, appear easier, feel easier, appear simpler, more calm, everything calms. Some things, and I'm only where I am, so I'm going to share from my experience. Some things, yes, most definitely, much more calm, much more ease, much more simplicity. Some things, yes. Some dukkha, some areas of suffering, just gone, just gone. Cut off in the Buddhist, cut off at the root, they can't come up again. Absolutely. But, given all that complexity, some situations and some sufferings that we are in the midst of in, in, in our life and in our culture and our society, global society nowadays, answers are not so easy. Whole situation, not so easy. Not so easy at all. And then the question is, am I willing to be uncomfortable? How willing am I to open to that discomfort? This, this being, this, this heart and, and mind, am I willing to actually bear all that? And, and have that kind of vulnerability. What do I want? Is it my own private nirvana? If you think in nirvanic terms, which many people don't. Or maybe, again, I don't think in terms of nirvana. I just have an image that as I, as I grow in practice and hopefully develop, that maybe I have this distant image. Someday, maybe I'll be... You know, my heart will be touched by this stuff, but not really disturbed. I'll have a kind of soft, open heart which is nice, it's nice to have that. Uh, but, but there's not a sense of deep disturbing. Some of you probably know this novel Franny and Zooey by J.D. Salinger. Do you, do you know this? It's a really fabulous, uh, wonderful novel. And there's their, brother, their sister and brother, Franny's the sister and Zooey's the brother, and, uh, and they're talking and... Um, Zooey is in his 30s, I think, and, and he has an ulcer. And so Franny's asking him about his ulcer. And he and, and, uh, says, when his sister asks him, uh, when his sister asks him, about, asks, asks him about his ulcer, he says, yes, I have an ulcer for Christ's sake. This is Kali Yuga, buddy, the Iron Age. Anybody over 16 without an ulcer is a goddamn spy. So it's typical J.D. Salinger language, but you get the point. I was, I was at a party, I don't know, went two weeks ago or something, and I was talking with a friend of a friend, and she made a very insightful comment. Uh, she's not a Dharma practitioner, but just to preface it a little bit. Uh, Buddhism, the Dharma, talks about suffering and the end of suffering. Now that's, that's the thread through all Dharma teachings and everything. Suffering and the end of suffering. It's a very famous comment of the Buddha. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. But what does that mean, suffering? What does suffering mean? Nowadays, it has a ton of different interpretations. What, do I, what, what did the Buddha mean when he said suffering? What do I mean 
when I say suffering? What do you mean when you say suffering? And what do you mean when you say the end of suffering? So this uh, woman at the party was really insightful. She said, well, historically in the West, uh, if you go back to Freud, and this idea that um, we need to open the awareness kind of to the depths of the psyche, to an intra-psychic, and the suffering that can come from that, and understand that and relate to that. And a little while, when a little time goes by, and um, psychoanalysts and psychologists, etc., understand that actually the family influence is really important. So for Freud, it was all here. One was projecting onto the family, but the problem was really here. Little few decades go by, the problem, now bigger understanding, the problem comes from the family, from stuff that happened in childhood. And nowadays it's almost unheard of. You don't meet anyone who doesn't acknowledge that there's some suffering that comes from that. We all think, oh, my child and my parents were like this and this and this. And it's, it's understood, I need to work with that, I need to explore that, I need to heal that. So there's been this growth of the understanding of which you never encounter in the Buddha. It never talks about someone had a painful childhood or their parents were difficult. It just wasn't there in the understanding. But nowadays we wouldn't think twice about it. Maybe some people now beginning to consider, say, the influence slightly wider of gender and race, maybe a little bit. But what about one step further and, and the society and the environment and the suffering that comes to me from that? You understand the whole picture is getting bigger and bigger and there's a, there's a growth in understanding here. So Freud talked about the repressed. What am I repressing that can come up and cause me pain? But it's a hundred and something years later now. We all know about this childhood pain. It's very important. But is that really where the repressed is these days? Is that what we're repressing nowadays in the culture? Or is it something in a whole other area? I don't know. It's just a question. But I, I think that's part of it. The, the, we, the social and environmental uh, situation affects us and we affect it. So just as we know that it's helpful to explore family wounds, childhood wounds and all that and heal that, um, so also with the social environmental pain. So with all that, some agitation with practice gets less and I feel some agitation gets more I feel or certainly can the same friend was talking about uh, many retreats done in Bodh Gaya the the place of the Buddha's enlightenment the monastery there where there's retreats uh, in Bihar which is I think just about the poorest uh, state in India and the suffering there is in your face children and uh, beggars and and incredible poverty and uh, lack of hygiene and malnutrition and disease it's just in your face while you're practicing meditation in the retreat very different than the environment we have here and for her it was really helpful give a real perspective on, on, on one's own pain and one's own suffering. Not to dismiss that pain, not at all to dismiss it, but to give it a perspective. And that was actually helpful. And you said, looking back, there were some people 
it was too overwhelming, perhaps. Perhaps it was just too overwhelming. They kept it at arm's length and try and make a cocoon where it's not touched. But then she could see the consequences in over years that that cocooning can have real consequences. So it's interesting now for me. If you say, <clears throat> there's a... a, a uh, a revolution. Dharma practice is a kind of revolution, sometimes people say. And the revolution is learning to turn inside and not chase so much in the world and not all the time go out and run away from one's experience, but turning to be with one's difficulty, one's emotions, etc. And that's really true and really important. But I, again, there's so many double-edged swords in life and in practice And one of them can be the danger that dharma practice can itself become a little insular, a little self-obsessed even, perhaps. Or that one is compassionate with others, but only with certain kinds of pain, interestingly, that one can kind of relate to a little bit. I'm not saying this does happen, I'm just saying it's a potential shadow side, a danger that we need to look out for. If I'm in a relationship with someone, a friendship or a family person or lover or spouse or whatever, and there's difficulty and there's pain, then it's not only always that I let go of it here. And I look inside and I let go and I work with the emotions as we're doing. Sometimes I need to communicate something and I need to act, I need to do something. And I would say it's the same with what impinges on us in terms of social environmental difficulty. I don't, it's not just here even. I need to uh, speak out. I need to act. So revolution is turning in and revolution is turning out. <clears throat> so I threw out this question at some point. Um, What do we want from working with the emotions? What do we want? And actually said, well actually we we can make a list here. We can add things to our list as we go through this retreat. And we already threw a few things out. For me, it feels really important. It feels really important that also what we're doing is developing the courage and the capacity to feel the pain of our times. And sometimes as a teacher, that's, I feel what's in the back of my mind when I, oh, I'm very interested in people meeting their individual suffering, which is why we're doing the practices that we're doing, but, and teaching metta and this and that, and what's so helpful for the individual. But I'm also interested in something else, which is uh, your, my heart's uh, capacity growing and the courage to feel growing. So can I have that capacity, kind of develop that capacity to feel the pain of the times without denial, or with less and less denial, with less and less numbness, with less and less apathy, overwhelm, or ill will, none of which is easy. I don't think that's easy at all. I really don't. So it was about a month ago, I can't remember exactly, and I came across a piece of news on the internet Um, maybe some of you saw it as well it was there for a day or two then it disappeared Um, scientists uh, marine scientists are almost certain now 
almost certain now that uh, with the, they haven't considered the combination of three factors. Climate change, global warming, with ocean warming. Ocean acidification, and I think the third one was pollution. Hadn't considered how those three act together. And uh, concluded, uh, very recent research, that there's almost certainty that we are on the brink, uh, in the next decades, of um, the largest marine species extinction, not in the history of humanity, but in the geological history of the earth. And so that appeared for a day or two on the internet and then disappeared again. I don't know. I mean, that that really affects me. I don't know where it lands with you. I find such uh, grief when, when I open to that. Well, what's going on in Somalia and the Horn of Africa right now? And again, it appears a little bit and then it seems to disappear. So the famine and the drought there, uh, perhaps you, you heard this too, there were, in that area of the world, of course, sub-Saharan Africa, that the uh, rains used to fail every 10 to 12 years. That was kind of typical and there would be drought and famine and massive crisis as there is now. And now more recently, they're failing every other year, every two years. Why? They didn't read the next part of the sentence, I would guess, from climate change. And similarly, on the same theme, uh, climate scientists and environmentalists are pretty sure, pretty sure that the uh, chances to limit global warming to 2 degrees centigrade are, are pretty much gone. We can pretty much say goodbye to that. And when looking at moment at more like 3.5 or something, which is actually a massive difference because it's above the limit that causes runaway climate change. We actually cannot predict even what happens there. So how does it feel? How, how is that? These are our times. This is what we're living in. Now I know, and I know for a fact, and it's really important not to judge here, it's really important not to judge. Sometimes I can't, a person cannot find any care in relationship to all that. I just, it just doesn't, it seems abstract. It seems like it doesn't involve me. I'm preoccupied with other stuff. Or, or something else, for other reasons, there's no care. Could be all kinds of reasons. But if that's the case, and that, that's really okay, so it's really important not to judge here. So okay, to gently inquire, well, what's behind that lack of care? What's supporting that lack of care? Why is it that there's this lack of care? It could be all different reasons. So where does that lack of care come from? That lack of connection, that lack of relationship with not just the earth and the biosphere, but also people elsewhere 
humans. And someone uh, pointed out, George Marshall pointed out, climate change is principally a human rights issue. Forget about in the environment. The earth's going to be fine. It's principally a human rights issue, which is a whole other way of looking at it. So very easily it could be that the lack of care, in some cases, from overwhelm or from um, a sense of powerlessness. Because what am I going to do? There's already seven billion people. It's already all out of control. And that's just too painful. Or it could be for many reasons. It's really important that the inner critic, which Chris spoke about last night, doesn't come into these kind of inquiries. But that there can be a gentle questioning there, a loving questioning. That, that there is, I think, what practice can offer is this capacity and courage to develop capacity and courage to hold and respond to the world's pain. You know, sometimes what we want is, because the situation now is so complex and the intricacy um, on the economic, political, sociological, uh, biospherical, technological, all this come together, is so complex and we want simplicity. I want, I want things to be simple. And that's interesting because part of this is asking, what does it mean to be an ethical human being these days? So the Buddha had a list of five things which Andy uh, told you about, five precepts uh, on the opening evening. You know, try not to do this and this and this and this and this. And one of my teachers said, that's great. It's like you just do that, you take care of it, and then forget about it and don't wrap yourself up in complexity and guilt. Really wise but I don't know how, how well that fits anymore. Sometimes we might want, or a part of us might want, open the textbook, read the list of rules, and tick them off. And it's all very simple, though it can be helpful. Chris will talk about the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, but I wonder if they need expanding nowadays. I, I don't know. I think so. I feel that practice and the path and our whole notion of what we're doing needs to address our relationship with the world's difficulties. To me, that seems important. I know, I know some people don't feel it's relevant at all and would even find it weird that I would be giving this talk. Um, but I feel... I mean, you might find it weird that I'm giving this talk right now. I don't know. And you might feel this is a very strange talk to be giving on the second night of a retreat when people generally their bodies are aching, their minds are aching, they're a bit fed up, they're wondering if it was really a good idea to come, you're tired. I know all that. I know all that. But that was part of the reason for giving it tonight. As I say, I usually give it on us. It's because if I think this talk doesn't fit here, maybe it's not the talk that needs to move and shift. Maybe it's my... Maybe it's my view of what meditation and what practice is that needs to shift. If I feel that addressing these issues doesn't belong here on the second night, on a night of difficulty. So the world and its events and the world and its suffering and the ideas in the world and the values in the world and the assumptions in the world they do affect me. They affect us enormously and insidiously. And I can't turn a blind eye to all that. Yukio Mishima, in a book called Spring Snow, said, 
to live in the midst of an era is to be oblivious to its style. There's a lot in, in the air, in more ways than one, that we're oblivious of. We just absorb it. We, have no, you know, we just drink it in and it becomes how we see. So what is this situation? We have touched on it already, but um, this is from uh, Lieutenant General Dallaire. He was, he was uh, the general in charge of the UN peacekeeping mission in Rwanda when there was the genocide there. Uh, and he says, At the Canadian Forces Peace Support Training Center, teachers use a slide to explain to Canadian soldiers the nature of our world. If the entire population of the planet is represented by 100 people, uh, this is from 2006, I think, so it's out of date, but 57 live in Asia, 21 in Europe, 14 in North and South America, and 8 in Africa. The numbers of Asians and Africans are increasing every year, while the number of Europeans and North Americans is decreasing. 50% of the wealth is in the hands of six people all of whom are Americans. Seventy people are unable to read or write. Fifty suffer suffer from malnutrition due to insufficient nutrition. Thirty-five do not have access to safe drinking water. Eighty live in substandard housing. Only one has a university or college education. Only one. Most of the population of the globe live in substantially different circumstances than those in the first world than we in uh, in the first world take for granted. Here's another thing I came across in a fantastic book called *Requiem for a Species* by a guy named Clive Hamilton. It's about climate change. He said in 2007 the International Panel for Climate Change updated its assessment of the economic costs of emission abatement, lowering carbon dioxide, um, by bringing together and assessing the results of a wide range of economic models. What did it show? To be fair, let's consider the worst case for the economy, in other words, the most expensive it could be, which is usually the best case for the climate. So doing the utmost you can for the climate at the most cost to the economy. The most stringent target assessed involved cutting emissions to ensure that greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are stabilized at 450 parts per million of CO2 equivalent in 2050. The economic model showing the highest cost of reaching this target estimates that pursuing it would cause a reduction of global Uh, GDP of 5.5% in 2050. Okay, all very abstract. Most models show lower costs. Bearing in mind that world income will be very unevenly distributed, what would that mean to the typical individual? Global population, according to the UN, average estimate of the UN, they have a range, is expected to increase from 6.7 billion in 2007 to 9.2 billion in 2050. If incomes grow at the anticipated 1.75% each year, average incomes will double by 2047. If we took stringent measures to restrict greenhouse gas emissions so that they stabilize at 450 parts per million, then, according to the models that show the greatest economic damage, at most, the effect on the world economy would be such that the doubling of average incomes will be held held up until 2000 and 
50, a delay of three years. I have selected the most pessimistic numbers. A more typical estimate of the cost to GDP is 2%, which would mean the loss of only one year's income growth between now and 2050. So he concludes, a one-year delay in the doubling of average incomes is the basis for the belief that pursuing a safe level of climate protection would be too expensive. read something like that, you hear something like that, and you think, well, what is going on with us as, as, as a species? What, what's going on? Something is going on. I think it's really complex. I, I don't even pretend to understand it. Something is going on. And, and I certainly don't want to trash modern culture, which gives us so many gifts. But some of the values and the ideas that underpin modern society and culture basically increase suffering for ourselves and for others. And this is where the Dharma comes in. Uh, so let's unpick some of those. Back in, uh, where was the Enlightenment, 17th century? 17th. Back in the 17th century, there was this Enlightenment with Descartes and Newton and uh, some other guys. And, um, and, and the idea became that uh, we could know an objective reality from a distance. The universe kind of does its thing separate from us, and we can objectively know that. And there was, a, there was at that time, and it's persisted until the modern day, and this is why it's important, there's this myth of detached knowledge, of objective knowledge. So Julie Nelson, who's an um, uh, econ- economist, said there's, there's this myth of what she calls objectivism, and she, she says, it's a romantic belief, a romantic belief in the possibility of connection-free knowledge from an outside-of-nature, perspective-free viewpoint. And it uh, lords, it praises emotional distance, autonomy, rationality, disinterestedness, disinterestedness, and hard knowledge, all of which is a deluded self-conception. And that persists in, in the view of nature but also the view of the economy and politics. And, and this will be in another talk, meditation. The whole idea of objectively knowing and experiencing meditation is also a myth, but we will get back to that. So that's one of the myths and ideas that's very prevalent. Um, There was also the idea that, uh, similar to this, that Really, people are rational beings. It's coming out of this last one. People are rational beings. So really, when they get given the facts and you lay out the facts in front of them, whether it's about climate change or whatever, they'll basically see what the pros and cons and the dangers are and they'll choose the rational thing to do. And that was assumed for hundreds of years as that's what human beings do. But a whole host of recent psychological studies have shown that that's almost never what human beings do. (laughs) Um, Quite the opposite. And in fact, um, sense of identity and sense of value almost always prevails in uh, what information we accept. So we accept only information that confirms my identity and my values. We mold our thinking around social identity, protecting, uh, protecting our social identity. So that you present... Uh, someone with inconvenient facts, like uh, something about climate change in the culture, 
Um, and that tends to actually harden their resistance. They actually close down more. It's fascinating. There, uh, they furthered this research. They, they were discriminating between what they called extrinsic values and in- intrinsic values. I don't want to go into this in too much detail, but basically, extrinsic values are things like caring what other people think about me, financial success, status, um, that that sort of thing. Intrinsic values are caring about my relationships, uh, community, um, self-acceptance. Um, values that transcend self-interest. So these sort of um, people can kind of score differently on these value um, measurements. And Actually, we're all mixed. You know, there's a mixture there. But it was a pretty good value, a pretty good predictor where, where someone was in terms of their value constellation, their constellation of values was almost 100% a predictor in lots of studies of how they would feel about things like the environment, their relationship with the environment, their relationship with human rights, their relationship with um, feeling okay about manipulating, and their relationship with things like prejudice. Okay, fair enough. But again, what does this have to do with the Dharma? All this has to do with Dharma and Dharma practice, so please uh, bear that in mind. And there was another uh, sociological survey recently tracking... Um, values and attitudes, social attitude survey, and very clearly showed that the culture and the society and the messages in the culture um, severely shape the, the values that people feel. So in other words, okay, extrinsic, intrinsic, but they're shaped by the messages that we're getting in society and advertising and media in particular, uh, but also political messages. And advertising in the media, and they deliberately generate a feeling of inadequacy. I'm not good enough. I need to buy this. I need to change that and get this kind of thing or whatever. Deliberately generating feelings of insecurity and inadequacy, and the intrinsic feelings uh, are dampened, are squashed, and the rise of extrinsic feelings. Do I think I'm immune to this because I'm a meditator? Maybe I've been meditating some decades and maybe I think, that doesn't affect me. Uh, From a guy called Tom Compton who works for World Wildlife Fund and a researcher. Advertisers employ huge uh, numbers of psychologists. I don't know if you knew that. They they, uh, uh, employ huge numbers of psychologists, advertisers. Guy Murphy, who is global planning director for the marketing company JWT, In his words, this is a marketing director speaking, marketers should see themselves as trying to manipulate culture, being social engineers, not brand managers, manipulating cultural forces, not brand impressions. Uh, The more they foster, and Tom Compton says, the more they foster these extrinsic values, the easier it is then to sell their products. So we have this massive inundation of marketing and and messages uh, deliberately engineered to tinker with our values and change our our value system. And all that feeds consumerism, feeds the whole uh, mindset of consumerism and individualism. And out of that comes new values. And the whole thing kind of cycles on itself. 
This is, again, from Clive Hamilton. And in all that, it makes certain types of thinking and conclusions feel like they're completely unavoidable. Unavoidable. Obvious. So something like how we think about economic growth, for instance, and the whole notion of the growth machine. So the growth machine, which we thought we had built to enhance our own ends, has taken on a life of its own and resists fiercely the slow awakening to its perils of the humans it is supposed to serve. The growth machine has, over time, created the types of people who are perfectly suited to its own perpetuation, docile, seduced by its promises, and unable to think beyond the boundaries it sets. Strong language. The closer some get to the levers of the machine, the more they must be committed to its goals. It is hard to imagine that anyone who believes that economic growth is part of the problem would ever be allowed near those levers. More likely they would be ridiculed in the newspapers and denounced in the parliaments. Ordinary people may at times question the wisdom of relentless growth and conclude that it cannot go on forever, yet they are soon bounced out of their subversive reverie by the inducements to go shopping. The system has created the type of people who are perfectly suited to what it needs, unending expansion. In this way, the growth system governs itself. We think we have power, but the growth system awards power only to those who will advance its objective. We internalize the discourse so that we begin to articulate the interests of the system and govern ourselves according to its rules. So the whole thing starts feeding on itself. We're in the middle of that, and Dharma practice is in the middle of that. Consumerism and economic thinking and the values play into each other and a snowball happens. And, relevant to the practices that we're doing, the emotions that I feel are uh, how much of them come from the ideal ideas and the values that I have. Ideas and values really give rise to emotions. So a meditator, because a meditator, a practitioner, is interested in delusion, and here is a gross delusion, to me that makes it part of the remit of a meditator, because it's delusion. And with that there's a kind of falling, a, a fragmentation of the social fabric. Everyone's individually pursuing their ends. We've lost this sense of common endeavor, of being in it together, supporting each other in the society. Vaclav Havel also comments on the sort of current zeitgeist. We are living in the first truly global civilization. This means that whatever comes into existence can very quickly span the whole world. We already said that. We are also living, he continues, in the first atheistic civilization. In other words, a civilization that has lost its connection with the infinite and eternity. For that reason, it prefers short-term profit to long-term gain. So I think that's very interesting. I want to return later on in the retreat to this whole idea of the infinite and eternity and nihilism, etc. And, and, uh, because I don't think it's wrong to be nihilistic necessarily, but it has. what does it lead to? 
And if I'm going to be nihilistic, can I be fully 100% nihilistic and really go into it and explore that? Because that would be different, but I will come back to that. So, what are our reactions to all this? To me, it's so complex, it's so complex, this whole situation, and also complex are the reactions we have. We have to be... uh, we have to look at ourselves with compassion and have a compassionate look uh, at ourselves. So are my reactions helpful or not? And this is always the question in the Dharma. My responses, are they helpful or not? So one can hear all this and about what cities in the world on coastlines will be underwater in X years' time, etc. And, and the, the mind may start going, well, the house on the hill is starting to look pretty good. I'll be, maybe I can get somewhere that's a little high up and the waters don't reach there. But it's also a metaphor because maybe I won't be able to afford a house on a hill. It's a metaphor for kind of taking care of me and mine. But that very self-preservation thinking is part of the problem. It's part of this. Uh, it feeds a kind of disconnection and in doing that it feeds suffering. I feel the only way we're going to relate to this well if it is, is if there's a real sense of we are in it together. When the waters rise, they rise everywhere for everyone together. And I'm not going to run up that hill and shut my doors and bolt my doors and stand at the window with a shotgun. <clears throat> or have my wealth preserve a place for me, preserve my security. running out of time but um, it's very interesting uh, in this uh, some stuff I've been reading the psychology of what happens in relationship to the threat of climate change which isn't an immediate danger and that's partly why it's so difficult I don't feel an immediate danger with it but basically there are all kinds of what's called maladaptive strategies we can have in response to the threat denial distraction minimizing the threat distancing it it's just somewhere in the future uh, guy called Anthony Lysowitz, who was asked in 2006 to write a report for the U.S. government, and he concluded on, on the um, attitudes of the U.S. Uh, population. He said, as a whole, the U.S. public is currently in what he called a wishful thinking stage of opinion formation, in which they hope the problem can be solved by someone else, without changes in their own priorities, decision-making, or behavior. So it's a kind of just manana, manana. Uh, Pleasure-seeking is another way we can... uh, Maladaptive strategy. Blame-shifting. Easy to blame China now because of all their coal-powered plants that they're building. Apathy. uh, What Clive Hamilton calls a false optimism, he says about that. Scientific observations of climate change have taken such an alarming turn in the last few years and global action remains so inadequate that pretending to oneself that it'll work out is a dangerous disconnection from reality. It's actually a kind of disconnection from the reality of things. So it might not feel painful. Sometimes people don't feel any pain with relation to this, but I I wonder about an analogy with that. You know, you can have cancer and be in a life-threatening situation or HIV, and there's no pain up to a certain point. 
or maybe a more accurate analogy, I worked for a very short time in, in a, a leprosy uh, community in India, and I didn't know this until I got there, but the problem with leprosy, why they lose their fingers and things, is because what they actually lose with the disease is the uh, nerve functioning in, in, in the extremities first. So they, they put their hand in a fire or something, and they don't actually realize that it's hot because they don't feel it. And then their fingers get burnt and infected, and, and, and they lose them. Can I learn to tolerate these feelings and really tolerate this? What I said earlier, this capacity, and, and said on the opening, the range of the human heart and the capacity of the human heart is extraordinary. And, and can I learn to tolerate the feelings? Say with climate change, I'm using climate change just because it's in a way perhaps the most pressing issue of our times and certainly the most comprehensive. Tolerate the feelings of say realizing that a major disruption above those two degrees which would trigger runaway climate change. Can I tolerate those feelings that a major disruption in the climate is, is probably no longer unavoidable? And what does that do? And can I tolerate those feelings? And can I practice so that I can tolerate those feelings? So all kinds of unhelpful uh, relationships and reactions we can have to all that. But what 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 also helpful, also helpful. And I don't have any easy answers at all, and I don't actually think anyone does. So turning out, this I call this talk, the meditator as revolutionary. So turn in and turn out. The revolution means to turn around, to turn out. But in a way, when I turn out the attention in terms of suffering, it's also relieving. I feel this pain in life, and as I said earlier, maybe my pain in my life is not my fault. Maybe it's not my fault. Why do I have this? Why can't I get it together? Maybe it's not my fault. Maybe it's the fault of the fabric of the society that we live in. This is from James Hillman, a, a, a psychoanalytic thinker. It's only depressing if you're in the, the posture of the child and feeling powerless. And then there's still another big thing out there to blame and you can't do anything about it. But for me, it doesn't feel depressing. It feels relieving, immensely relieving, to know that it's not me that's at fault. And I don't have to own and be the cause of all my misery. There's something fundamentally wrong in society, and this relieves me of the blame, first of all. And second of all, it relieves me of the guilt. And third, it excites me, draws my attention outside to more than myself. That's not depressing. So he's a, th- he's a psychotherapist and he thinks a lot about therapy. And he com- you know, he's in the therapy one. He thinks therapy could be causing depression as much as curing it. So everything he says about therapy we can say about the Dharma and practice. Therapy could be causing depression as much as curing it because the classic symptoms of depression are remorse, a concentration on oneself and repetition. What's wrong with me? How did it get this way? I shouldn't have done that. Feeling poor and broke and without energy. In other words, a withdrawal of libido from the world. The moment you're focusing back on the world as dysfunctional, you're drawing attention to the world, and that's not depressing. Um, He also, in conversation with a guy called James Ventura, a fascinating conversation to read, and they're talking about different kind of therapy situations and say taking a group like a, um, an eating disorder group for example and say um, 
excuse me, I'm giving the wrong example, um, in relation to what we just said. So this is a conversation between them. It's not just your parents, your childhood, or my relationship with my marriage. There is a dysfunction in the society that is affecting us. And the second step is, I cannot repair it in myself, in my own relationships alone, because my problem is social dysfunctions. So how is settling things with my wife going to repair the dysfunction of the general situation? That's a romantic delusion, that if we could just get our sex right, our conversations right, if I could just find the right relationship, if my little home could be perfect, could be safe, if I could find balance in my home, I'd be happy. Talk to my kid, talk to my wife, quit drinking, get laid decently a couple of times a week, get on a decent diet, get exercise, make a little more money, then I would really be okay. Except you won't, because you still live in this crazy world of dysfunction that impinges on you and influences you and yours 24 hours a day. Where the school isn't right for my kids, where the food I eat is not right, where the air I breathe is not right, where the architecture in which I spend my time assaults me, the lighting and the chairs and the smells and the plastic are not right, where the words that I hear on TV and are printed in the newspaper are lies, where the people who are in charge of things are not right because they are hypocritical and hiding what they are really doing. So how can I ever get it right within my home and within my marriage? One of the things we are saying is, you can't make a separate peace. You can't sign a peace treaty with the society through therapy, and I would add, or meditation, or dharma practice. And one of the things they talk about, um, say for example, working with an eating disorder, and people go to a group and, and uh, discuss and uh, support each other with an eating disorder. But actually you have to include in that conversation, in my group from now, we must talk about... Ac- Agribusiness, fertilizers, pesticides, packaging, advertising, school lunches, fast foods, diets. We have to talk about the entire thing because that's the situation, that's what's impinging. So, meditator is revolutionary, turning in, turning out. Caroline Lucas, MP, MP now, uh, I heard her speak, and she was calling for national acts of civil disobedience from an MP. Cool. (laughs) Um, I don't know. You decide what it means, meditator is revolutionary. You decide what that means for you. I need to look at my stuff, definitely. I need to look at my... That's what we're doing. We're really looking at my pain and my stuff. One of the words uh, that dharma means, the original word dharma, also one of its meanings is duty. It's interesting. One of its meanings is duty. So we think, what is my duty in life? What is my duty to my family? My parents as they grow old, my children, my spouse, my partner, whatever it is. What's my duty? Duty can be a heavy word for us, though. But what is my larger duty or my larger love and the movement of my larger love? So all this, to me, very much affects Dharma practice and, and how I, I feel I need to think about and relate to Dharma teaching. Um, this is James Hillman again. So remember, he's, if you've never heard of him, he was head of the Jung Institute in Zurich. So he was at the head of Jungian, uh, the Jungian psychotherapy world for 10 years or something. He was head of that education department. And he's a 
you know, he's totally embedded in the psychotherapeutic culture for decades. He's probably in his late 80s now. Um, and, and he comments a lot on that culture, but from within. So it's not an outsider. And he says, suppose that we entertain the idea, he's a very radical thinker, suppose we entertain the idea that psychotherapy makes people mediocre. And suppose we entertain the idea that the world is in extremis, suffering an acute perhaps fatal disorder at the edge of extinction, then I would claim that what the world needs most is radical and original extremes of feeling and thinking in order for its crisis to be met with equal intensity. The supportive and tolerant understanding of psychotherapy is hardly up to the task. Instead, it produces counterphobic attitudes to chaos, marginality, and extremes. Strong words now. Therapy as sedation, benumbing, anesthesia, so that we calm down, relieve stress, relax, find acceptance, balance, support, empathy. The middle ground, mediocrity. Strong words. Everything that's said there, I, I have to ask myself as a Dharma teacher, am I supporting that? Is that what I'm in the business of doing? I have to be careful what I say. So I, have a, I feel I really need to be asking myself these questions. It's a danger. What, what am I modeling as a Dharma teacher? Am I modeling a kind of um, nice security of... Uh, Fitting nicely in as a well-respected citizen, and, and uh, uh, you know, am I modelling that? Well adapted, well trained, well tamed. So again, I might imagine as a meditator, I've been meditating. I'm conscious because that's what meditators do. We're into consciousness. I imagine then I'm immune to the effects of all this insidious value manipulation, etc. So do I imagine that? And what am I going to do about it? This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, who's uh, primarily he's a monk and he's a uh, translator of, of the uh, original Buddhist text. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate of justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political justice, injustice who cannot stand up for themselves. This is a deeply ethical challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. The Buddha said, the gift of the Dharma is the highest gift you can give someone. But what is the Dharma? What is it? To me, the Dharma is about values. So when I'm teaching the Dharma, I'm also teaching about values, values that matter, values that go deep. So what that means is, if you, if I, want to give the gift of the Dharma, it means speaking up about values. It means engaging this debate, starting a debate in the culture about values, a deep revolution in, in, in the discourse about values in our culture. But th- this is hard. I don't, you know, I, I don't have any simple answers at all. And I, I'm uh, fascinated and flabbergasted at the complexity of it all and the difficulty of it all. And sometimes it seems like we need a long view somehow. And 
also our time is running out and we need a long view. James Ventura has a very <laughs> lovely passage and he, he reports this in conversation. He says, Just around when he was turning 13, my kid came home one night after dark, sat on the couch and in a kind of fury, so this is a 13-year-old boy and uh, you know the sensibility is there the tenderness is still there and the eyes are opening at that age and the adventuring is happening. So this tenderness and this openness of sensibility is going out to the world and exploring the world. He came home one night after dark, sat on the couch and in a kind of fury suddenly burst out with, it's fucked, it's so fucked, man. The whole thing is fucking fucked. What do you do in this world, man? What could I say to him? that things are going to be all right when they're not, that it'll be okay when he grows up and gets a job, when it won't. I got a little crazy and impassioned, and I said something like this, that we are living in a dark age, and we are not going to see the end of it, nor are our children, nor probably our children's children. And our job, every single one of us, is to cherish whatever in the human heritage we love we love, and to feed it and keep it going and pass it on. Because this dark age isn't going to go on forever. And when it stops, those people are going to need the pieces that we pass on. They are not going to be able to, to build a new world without us passing on whatever we can. Ideas, art, knowledge, skills, or just plain old fragile love. How we treat people how we help people, that's something to be passed on. Maybe you know the the, the story of um, uh, I've lost it, oh here it is. Um, Once upon a time two masons worked on a building site. A passing pilgrim asked the first what he was doing. I'm just chipping away at another block of rock until payday on Friday, the man replied. The pilgrim turned to the second who said, I'm building a great cathedral that will not be finished until long after I'm gone. So we need that long view. And what's the difference? It's so easy for fear to come up in relationship to all this, or for people, and I've heard People say, fellow Dharma practitioners, seasoned Dharma practitioners say, I don't get involved in all that because it's just going down the road of fear. But what's the difference between fear and concern? What's the difference between being afraid and being concerned? There's a big difference. To me, concern has stability, rootedness, strength and balance in it, which fear does not. And the same person also said, I don't go there because it just seems like a lot of anger, getting angry. But again, I ask, what's the difference between anger and ill will? Ill will is when I want to hurt someone, when I want to put some down, someone down and make them suffer. We could say anger is um, energized responsiveness at something that's not right. And I don't want to hurt anyone. Out of all that can come a fearlessness. That's possible for us, that there can be a fearlessness in relationship to all this, just as much as in relationship to our emotions, also in relationship to the world situation.
There was a practitioner called uh, Jesse Maceo, and there was an interview with him ages ago, and he said, he's interesting because he, he takes quite strong stance, so he refused to pay taxes in the U.S. because of military funding through taxes, etc. And he, he just asked to explain himself, and he basically said, the deeper I go into my practice, the less I'm willing to behave in ways that diminish my sense of purpose on this earth. It takes a really strong stand. So I don't know what that means for you, what it, what it means. I know that part of taking, taking part of practice is taking risks. I know that for sure. That to deepen in practice involves taking risks, and taking risks and insight feed each other. More insight I have, more risks I can take. More risks I take, more insight I get. They're mutually supportive. I don't know what that looks like. It's interesting, I don't know if perhaps you feel a lot about this stuff that I'm talking about, perhaps you feel a little bit, but you might also notice that in certain groups or situations or with friends, there can be a fear or hesitancy or reluctancy to speak up, that it becomes uncomfortable in the room, or that they might think I'm such and such or whatever. Fear of speaking out. Is that something that I need to be constrained by? Or can I be radical? Can I, can I let my voice sing out? My concern sing out? Hannah Arendt, writing after the Holocaust, a commentator on the Holocaust and the other, other things. There was once a wicked time when intellectuals grew feeble-minded and declared life to be the highest good. But... Death begins his reign of terror precisely when life becomes the highest good. She goes on to say, If you are no longer willing to die for anything, you will die for having done nothing. Now she's talking about the Holocaust, but why I bring that up is, um, what's going to give me uh, a freeing perspective on this, a powerful perspective and relationship with all this. Um, psychological studies also recently have been a host to show that if you think about death a little bit, just a little bit, you tend to get more selfish and more self-interested. So being reminded of death tends to stimulate the self-interest and selfishness and, and self-protection. Thinking about death a lot, about your mortality, has the opposite effect. And it releases, uh, we let go of self-interest and self-imprisonment. So the contemplation of our mortality actually is quite central here. It relativizes the whole relationship with self and other and existence. That's a factor. Less uh, self-focused values. Obviously the practices that we're doing and developing this capacity to hold what's moving through. So I can hold my own individual pain, eventually maybe I can hold this bigger pain too. And I can, and it's possible. It doesn't mean it's not going to be feel like a lot, but it's possible, absolutely possible. And, and we haven't talked about this yet on the retreat, and there's these very deep teachings of emptiness in the tradition. 
and a whole re-understanding of the nature of existence and reality. And that brings with it equanimity, deep equanimity, deep spaciousness, uh, deep strength and deep courage in relationship to all this. So I want to finish with just with uh, some words from Martin Luther King. And I was in London, um, I don't know, some months ago, and, and um, I met, I don't know what she did, I think she was a artist, who, a, a bit of an artist and a bit of a journalist working in environmental areas. And she had been to some conference with lots of dignitaries and um, kings and queens and world leaders and stuff, and they kept saying, they were ta- it was on nuclear disarmament, but every time they talked about nuclear disarmament, they kept prefacing it with, it's the, um, what were they calling it, the, um, the second most urgent problem of humanity. And they kept saying it's the second most urgent problem, <laughs> and the first one being climate change. So when Martin Luther King said this, I think he was uh, talking obviously about um, civil, civil rights, but also about the, the threat of nuclear um, catastrophe in, in the 60s. But to me, it applies as strongly today. This hour in history needs a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. The saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. Human salvation lies in the hands of the creatively maladjusted. Should we have some silent time together? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.